Good morning. Our scripture today comes from Romans 6, verses 6 through 16. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all of the children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather, Isaac, though they are not yet born, had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God, on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Praise for his word. Good morning. And welcome again to our service today. Great to have you all with us. Um, like to begin by saying congratulations to those of our students who may have graduated this week. A number of colleges have already had their graduations, and we uh, celebrate that with you. Those of you who graduated this year made it through one of the most difficult uh, senior years in history, no doubt, and we rejoice with you for your uh, graduation. I want to mention some of you have begun asking. In fact, the first question I was asked when I walked into the building this morning is, what, what about the mask situation? We will, uh, with the changing guidance from the CDC and the state, our elders will meet as soon as possible this week and continue to uh, uh, adjust as, as we think best for our church in light of the continuing changes in guidance. So thank you really mean that. Thank you for bearing with us over this past year with the difficult decisions that we've made and you've continued to support our church and stick with us and continue to be very, very understanding and thank you so much for that. Today is our last day in the book of Romans until September. We are uh, going to uh, shift in the coming weeks to some different topics, some different themes. And next Sunday, we're going to begin a short series called Benediction. We're going to look at the benedictions in Scripture, uh, the blessings like the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. These passages that sometimes we recite at the end of a, a service, they're known as benedictions. We're going to look at what they tell us about God's will for our lives. We're also going to talk about how we can speak the benedictions and blessings of Scripture over our own households and loved ones and over our own lives. Next Sunday, we're going to have a special guest speaking who's somewhat of an expert on this topic of uh, spoken blessing. Pastor Alan Wright from Renolda Church is going to be with us. 
He's written a book called The Power to Bless. This is a real area of emphasis for Alan. So he's going to start us off, and then in the following weeks, uh, spring and going into the beginning of summer, we'll look at blessings of Scripture. That'll be followed by some different topics. We'll pick up with Romans again in mid-September. But today, we land on uh, Romans chapter 9, and uh, before we get into that, I'd like to pray just once again. So much happening in our world right now that we especially, as God's people, need to be praying. Uh, like to pray for peace in the Middle East. You know, the Bible tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. There's a lot happening in that part of the world right now, so would you join me as we pray once again? Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. You've called us as your people to pray. Pray that your kingdom come and your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. You've also told us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for peace in the Middle East. We pray that you would calm uh, hearts of decision makers and give wise guidance. We pray for an end to destruction and the end of life. We pray for peace there. We especially pray for our missionaries, Randall and Luda Ford, who are serving in Israel in the midst of all that's happening. Would you protect them? Would you empower them and anoint them and use them for your glory? And now, Lord, we pray for all here this morning, all watching us online. We pray the, the prayer of Psalm 119 in verse 18. Open our eyes, Lord, to behold wondrous things out of your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the book of Romans. Romans is one of 13 letters in the New Testament that were written by the Apostle Paul. I think Romans is the most challenging of his 13 letters. And three chapters in the book of Romans I find to be the most challenging chapters. Those are chapters 7, 9, and 11. Now, I've already covered chapter uh, 7 just a few weeks ago. But today we land on Romans chapter 9. Here's, here's why many people find this to be a challenging chapter. I can remember reading through the book of Romans uh, early in my life as a Christian and getting to chapter 9 and reading things like um, uh, that, that God's purpose concerning election might stand. He chose Jacob over Esau. As Scripture says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. It's Tiffany Redforth just a moment ago. found Scriptures like that particularly troubling. And words like election, because it kind of made God seem not very fair. And worst of all, I had, I had heard about people who had a view of, of God's sovereignty that caused them to say, evangelism is unnecessary. No need to share your faith. God's going to do what he's going to do. So we really don't need to evangelize. And I felt very strongly about evangelism, and I saw it all over the New Testament and so it troubled me when I would read through Romans chapter 9. We're going to look at some challenging verses today, but I want to say this right off the bat. Many Bible difficulties are cleared up when we understand a verse or a passage or even a chapter in its larger context or its larger setting. It really helps us in interpreting Scripture to understand Scripture in its setting, in its passage. I think Romans 9 is best understood 
in connection with Romans 10 and 11. Romans 9, 10, 11 seems to me to be a unit of thought of the Apostle Paul. Remember, he wrote the book of Romans as a letter. And when he wrote the letter to the church at Rome, it didn't have chapter divisions like we have uh, neatly uh, laid out for us in our Bibles today. The chapter divisions were added by translators uh, later. So this was a long letter to be read to the church at Rome. And as, as you and I would do writing a letter, Paul moves from certain emphases to other emphases as inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it seems to me he kind of ended a thought at the end of chapter 8. And in chapter 9, 10, and 11, he's moving into another area of thought. Chapter 12, there's a pretty abrupt break into another emphasis. And the emphasis begins at the beginning of chapter 9 with the Apostle Paul expressing the fact that he's grieved that many of his fellow Jews were rejecting the gospel. And we read this in verses 1 through 5. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Wow. That's pretty strong. Paul is a Jew and he's saying, I feel so strongly about the salvation of my fellow Jews that I could, could almost wish that I were cut off from Christ so they could be saved. That's compassion for people who are lost. He goes on to say, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, the Jewish race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. You hear what he's saying? He's saying the Jews are the ones to whom God gave the promises. Starting with Abraham, I'll give you offspring, descendants through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. God gave them the law. God gave them the, the prophets and the promises. And through the Jews came the Christ, the answer to the promise made to Abraham. And so this is how Paul starts out this section. He's grieved that his fellow Jews were rejecting the gospel. Now, I'm just going to read for you the, the starting verses of chapter 10, and you'll see that he's continuing this thought in chapter 10. When he begins chapter 10, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He's continuing to express his concern for the Jews to come to faith. He begins chapter 11 then. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. The point is simply that these, these chapters are, are woven together. Many Bible difficulties are cleared up when we understand a verse, a passage, even a chapter in its larger context. So Paul's expressing his grief that many of the Jews, many of his fellow Jews, his kinspeople, are rejecting the gospel. And so it raises the question, has God's promise to Abraham then failed? And Paul's answer is no, not at all, which leads us to the second point. The promise to Abraham hasn't failed because the children of promise 
are now considered Abraham's offspring. What does he mean by that? He goes on to verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, just because many of the Jews are rejecting the gospel of Jesus, rejecting Christ himself, doesn't mean the promise to Abraham failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, that is his physical offspring, but quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh or the children of God, but the children of the promise are crowned as offspring. Now, that's a pretty complicated paragraph. But what Paul is saying is this. Not all who are physical descendants of Abraham, Jewish according to the flesh, are counted as uh, members of his offspring, but those who have embraced by faith the promise through Christ, even though they are Gentiles, non-Jews, are now included as inheritors of the promise. This is really made clearer in a passage found in the book of Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. I think we can put that on the screen for you here. Yes, this really kind of clears up what he's writing in Romans. Paul writes these words. Know then that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, and Gentiles are those who are not Jews, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What is all that saying? Paul would explain that Jesus Christ is the promised offspring of Abraham. Back in the book of Genesis, when God called Abraham, he promised him descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand by the seashore. He said, I'm going to give you offspring. Even though Abraham was old, his wife was old, they had no children. He said, through your offspring, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And Paul's saying here, God was actually preaching the gospel to Abraham in advance. And he's explaining, now Jesus has come. He has given his life on a cross. He has shed his blood to redeem from all sin those who would place their faith in him. And through faith in Christ, we are made part of the family of God. We are made the offspring of Abraham. We are the recipients of the promise, children of the promise. So Paul's point is this. Just because some Jews reject the gospel, God's promise hasn't failed. It's those who by faith have embraced Jesus Christ who are the true offspring of Abraham. And he says in Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Number three, Paul then makes the point that the reason for anybody's salvation, whether they're Jew or they're Gentile, the reason anybody's saved is simply and entirely God's mercy. That's why I titled this sermon, It All Depends on God's Mercy. I think that's the primary overriding idea in this challenging chapter. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. 
So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Well, that's, that's clear enough. That's easy enough, right? Where this chapter gets, to me at least, really challenging has to do with the examples that the Apostle Paul now uses as, as God's right to show mercy where he wants to show mercy, where and to whom he wants to show mercy. And he gives, I think, three examples. And the examples, uh, one example comes just before uh, the verse about mercy. It's the example of Jacob and Esau. And it's the one that, that uh, you may have heard uh, Tiffany read a moment ago and said, wow, that sounds uh, strange uh, that God would say, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. What's that all about? Paul is giving an example of God's right to work through whom he wants to work through, to pour out mercy where he wants to pour out his mercy. And he says, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Isaac was married to Rebekah. And they were going to have two sons, twins. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election, God's choosing, might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who's called. She was told the older will serve the younger. That is, the promise of the gospel was going to come through Jacob rather than Esau. But then we read these words that are kind of troubling. As it's written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, if we go back into this story, it's in the book of Genesis, first book of the Old Testament. We won't find those words, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. They're actually in the very last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And the prophet is speaking for God, and he's kind of giving this conversation between God and the Israelites, and the Israelites are saying to God, how have you loved us? And God's response is, Jacob have I loved, but Esau hated. In other words, God's love has been expressed for you, Israelites, and that he chose to work through Jacob. He chose to bring promises to you. He chose to bring blessings to you, even though many of you continued to reject him. But what is this about hatred? Does God really hate people? I think this phrase is best understood as an expression of preference. Commentators call it an idiom of preference, just an expression of preference, choosing one over another. Here's the best example of it I know given by Jesus himself. Here's what Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Wow, Jesus said that. Does that mean Jesus wants you, if you're married, to hate your wife, hate your father, mother? Of course not. Of course not. It's a figure of speech. It's an expression of preference. Jesus is saying, if you want to be my follower, you've got to be willing, if it comes to this, to leave behind even your household to be my follower. And there are people in many parts of the world today, if they choose to follow Jesus Christ and choose to be baptized, their family will reject them. This is a reality in many parts of the world today. Jesus is not telling us to hate them. Jesus honored his father and his mother. 
He, uh, on the very cross, he committed his mom into the care of his disciple John in a great loving gesture. Jesus is not telling us to hate our wives, those of us who are husbands. We're to love our wives as Christ loved the church, the Bible says. But it's an expression of preference. Paul's simply making the point that God has the right to choose through whom he will work, how he will work, where he will show his mercy. That's the first example he gives. The second example he gives is of Pharaoh. And the examples he's giving are all from Jewish history. He's reminding people how, how he's, God's chosen to work, God's chosen to bring about his purposes. So don't be shocked that now God has chosen to pour out his mercy on the Gentiles. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That's another tough one. If we go back in the book of Exodus and we read about Pharaoh, if you've ever read the Old Testament, you'll know that Pharaoh was a ruler of Egypt, the hard-hearted ruler of Egypt who enslaved the Jews. And the Jews cried out to God for deliverance. And God sent Moses to come to Pharaoh and say, Thus says the Lord, let my people go. And Pharaoh said repeatedly, No, I won't let them go. And so God sent Moses to put plagues upon Egypt, one after another. And repeatedly, well, the Bible says initially the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And later it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Regardless, Pharaoh made choice after choice after choice. I'm not letting these slaves go. And Moses, uh, uh, Paul rather, is saying that God let Pharaoh have his own way. God gave him numerous warnings and signs. But do we conclude that God hard, hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, it would certainly seem so. Do we also conclude that Pharaoh made a choice to rebel against God's many warnings? Certainly seems so. Paul then gives the example of pottery. Who are you, a man, to answer back to God? Well, what has molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? Why does he bring this up? Because the Jews in their history knew that their great prophets, Isaiah uses this example, Jeremiah uses this example of the people of God, the Jewish people, being like clay and God being like the potter, the one who was fashioning them, was working, shaping them in this way. Paul is using all this imagery from the Old Testaments to show that God has the right to work where he wants to work, to work through whom he wants to work through whom, to show his mercy where he wants to show his mercy. And Paul is concluding that God's promise to Abraham has not failed, but he's poured out his mercy on Gentiles as well as Jews. In the midst of this, there is, I think, a very strong warning. Because in chapter 10, Paul will write this. Of Israel, God says, all day long, I've held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. It's a warning for those who hear the gospel of Jesus, who hear the call to be willing to follow him, whatever the cost. And they hear it repeatedly, over and over and over. But yet would say, 
yeah, I believe in God. Uh, I know that's true. But I'm not really going to follow you. I'm not going to give up anything. I like my life the way it is. I'm going to keep control of my own life. I'm not going to follow Jesus Christ. There's a warning here about those who continue to harden their hearts against the will of God. And then Paul makes the point, the gift of God's righteousness is attained by faith. As he draws to the end of this chapter, he says, what do we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that's by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. Many Israelites did not see and understand and realize through the prophecies given in the Old Testament that the salvation of God through the Messiah Jesus was to be obtained by simple faith. In Paul's time, many of the Gentiles did. Paul's point is that faith is that which makes one an offspring of Abraham. Faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the completed work of Jesus. Faith rests entirely on God's mercy in sending Jesus to die in our place. Now, that's a lot on a chapter that I, again, find one of the, the most challenging in all the writings of the Apostle Paul. But what do we make of it? What does it mean for you and me? What can we conclude from this chapter? Number one, God's election is a reality. It is taught in Scripture, and it magnifies His mercy and His grace. Again, what do we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And by the way, if you're reading this chapter, it makes you think God's not fair, God's not unjust. Take this verse to heart. There's not injustice on God's part. It magnifies His mercy. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, if I'm a believer, it's because God has shown his mercy to me. Number two, human responsibility is taught in Scripture. Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but they didn't succeed in reaching the law because they didn't pursue it by faith. They pursued it by works. In chapter 10, again, Paul gives this warning. All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Human responsibility, our call to make a choice for God, to follow God, to walk in His ways, is taught repeatedly throughout Scripture. So the sovereignty of God does not set aside human responsibility. Both are reality taught in Scripture. This mystery, and I do think it's a mystery, was depicted years ago by a, a preacher named Donald Gray Barnhouse, and he said, it's like we see the, the gate to heaven, the entrance to heaven, and over it there's a great big sign, whosoever will, let him come. We walk through the gate, and then we look back at it, and on the inside we read, chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world. How are both of those a reality? 
I can't explain it. I just accept it. Thirdly, a reality in this passage, Christians are called to evangelism. Now, one reason I say take chapters 9, 10, and 11 together is because in chapter 10, the Apostle Paul gives as strong a challenge and call for Christians to evangelize as he does anywhere in his writings. He writes this in chapter 10. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you find yourself worried, thinking, wow, I don't know if I'm chosen by God. I don't know if I'm elected. If you find yourself fearful about that, do this. Call on the Lord. Call on his name. Ask him to reveal himself to you. All who seek him will find him. All who call on his name will receive his grace. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Believers are supposed to have beautiful feet. Every follower of Jesus is called to evangelize, to share the gospel with you. How can your neighbors hear unless somebody tells them? How can the lost of the world and the unreached people groups hear the gospel unless we send missionaries or unless we go? It's a role of every believer. That's why we talk about in our spiritual growth in our church, building followers of Jesus who are sent. A believer is a person with a sent identity. So if you're a follower of Jesus, God has a mission for you. Among, among other things, he's called you to do, you're sent into this world. To your family members, to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your friends, to share the love and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Any theological understanding that makes evangelism unnecessary is flawed. Paul brings it all together here. God's sovereignty, yes. Human responsibility, yes. Evangelism for every believer, yes. And then, as he concludes the whole section, which I think is one big unit of thought, at the end of chapter 11, we see this. Christians should, God's ways, though we may not understand them, <laughs> they should lead us to worship. Paul writes, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. The word inscrutable is not one I ever use, and I had to look it up. Definitions include impossible to understand or mysterious. Paul is saying when you put all this together, certainly God's ways are unsearchable and mysterious. For who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor? Who's going to tell God what he has to do? Who's understood everything about God? Or who's ever given a gift to him that he might be repaid? In other words, all we have is a result of God's grace and his mercy. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory 
forever. And now, I think I would conclude this by a quote from a great theologian, uh, now deceased, named John Stott. And he said this, If anyone is lost, the blame is theirs. If anyone is saved, the credit is God's. If anyone is lost, the blame is theirs. If anyone is saved, the credit is God's. It all depends on his great, great, great grace and mercy. Would you join me as we pray about that? Father, those of us who are believers, we will forever praise you for your mercy. Though there's much we don't understand, we know you have placed your hand upon us and revealed yourself to us and opened the eyes of our hearts that we might embrace the one who is the way and the truth and the life. And we forever thank you. Father, would you give us compassion for those who don't know you? Would you stir us by the power of the Holy Spirit to go to those who've not heard about our Lord Jesus, who've not seen his love and demonstration, who've not understood that the gospel is good news of salvation? Stir our hearts. Let us embrace the call and take the good news of the gospel to them. And we ask this in Jesus' great name. Amen. One of the ways that you and I can go into our immediate community, this area, and share the gospel, if you're looking for opportunities and ways, is by getting involved in one of our local ministries. Um, you'll see on the, the screen um, a, a link to our website and the serve section. We, um, we have a vision, we call our Vision 2025, and I think the most daunting part of that vision statement is that we envision by the year 2025, 80% of the members of our church being involved somehow, some way, outside the walls of the church, taking the love and the truth of Jesus. That may be with one of our local ministries that we support, you'll find on our website. It may be like if you read your bulletin today for an opportunity for, for uh, those with nursing skills at the Southside Medical Clinic. Maybe a ministry you feel called to start over the years. But we believe God's people are sent people. And a good way to start would be to engage with one of our local ministries. I also want to remind you before we continue to worship the Lord Fill out the hand here card. If you're here in person, if you're watching from home, you can fill this out online. You can put your prayer request there. And I want to thank you again. Can't thank you enough for your continued financial support of our church, your continued giving, uh, particularly in such an unusual year as we have had. Now let's praise the name of the Lord together, shall we?